Hey everybody, welcome back to Grey Malkin Lane, the podcast where queer friends and allies gather to review and discuss the original X-Men comic books from the 1960s. Now, in our last episode, we just had the trial of the Toad, which was a blast. We had a great time analyzing this bizarre character, and I had a lot more feelings than I expected. Uh, just before that, we reviewed Avengers number 53, which is the end of that big seven-part Magneto and the Brotherhood of Evil Mutant stories that we've been covering in X-Men and Avengers. Uh, just before that, the X-Men buried Professor X. Uh, he is seemingly dead, although he's really hiding in the basement, and they are still grieving. Uh, Gary Friedrich recently took over the writing. Uh, so today we're going to be reviewing X-Men number 46, which is called The End of the X-Men. It's a big status quo change in the 60s during a time when the book was not selling very well. Uh, this issue is from July 1968. Uh, the writer's Gary Friedrich. The pencils are by Werner Roth and Don Heck both, uh, with inks by John Tardic Leone and letters by Artie Simon. Now, prior to that, we're going to introduce our guests. I have a returning wonderful guest who I am a big fan of both of them. I'm thrilled to have uh, Derek Koonskin back with us. Hi, Derek. Hey, how's it going? Good, good. Uh, Derek was just with us for the Trial of the Toad, and we had a last-minute cancellation today. And uh, I'm so happy you were able to pitch in. Thanks for joining us, man. Oh, this is fun. Uh, and then we also have Josh Trujillo back. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you. Good. Josh was most recently on our episode with uh, Joshua Helfialkov. Uh, we had a great time. Uh, in fact, we just posted that shortly before recording this episode. We always record a few weeks in advance. And I am thrilled to be joined by a writer that I have enjoyed for many years as a comic book reader. Uh, what an honor it is to have you here, Mr. Tom Pear. How are you, Tom? Hey, nice to be here. Thank you. I always want to make sure I'm saying last names right. It's Payer, correctly? It's, it's actually Payer. Payer. Damn it. I do it every time. <laughs> oh, that's okay. You know how many billion times I've heard Payer in my life? It doesn't bother me. My last name is Anderson, and it is impossible to get wrong. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so let's begin by having you each kind of introduce yourselves briefly. Let us know where we might know you from. Uh, let us know as well your gender pronouns. Uh, so let's go in the order of introductions. We'll just do Derek, Josh, and then Tom. Thanks. Uh, I'm Derek Kunskin. I'm uh, he, him, and I'm a science fiction writer. I have three novels out so far in the Quantum Evolution series, and the first one in the Venus Ascendant series is... Uh, just out now as a paperback. It had previously been a hardback. And uh, yeah, I'm a longtime X-Men reader. And so this podcast is like, just pump it right into my veins. You've got some uh, like big stuff happening right now, it looks like. There's a lot of movement with your books. Uh, yeah, because it came out, because the House of Sticks came out as a paperback, my publisher put the first three books on as ebook deals for 99 cents. And at the same time, I've been doing uh, Ask Me Anything at Reddit Fantasy today. And it got like uh, four or 5,000 people looking at it. And so, yeah, just been wow. busy today. It's, uh, it's amazing as writers, we have these big periods of drought and then suddenly it's like, oh, everybody wants me. <laughs> uh, Josh, do you want to go next? Uh, sure. Uh, I'm Josh Trujillo. He, him. I'm a comic book and video game guy. Um, I believe the week this airs, Hulkling and Wiccan is going to be in print. So look for that for, in time for Pride. And um, I'm also on Blue Beetle at the end of the year, which just got announced. I have seen uh, I have seen Coakley and Wiccan advertised in the recent books with like full page spreads. Uh, uh, really, really, uh, Marvel seems to be putting a lot of energy behind promoting this book, which shows me how proud of it they are. Uh, and so yeah, it's wonderful. And then Blue Beetle's a really big deal. How are you feeling? Um, I'm totally stoked. Um, we. 
pitched to this character last year for what's called a DC round robin competition. And um, we did not win, but uh, ultimately I guess the, the idea won out. And so we're actually gonna get to do it in time for the movie, which is a huge thrill. Who's your artist? Uh, Adrian Gutierrez is gonna be the artist for it. Wonderful, I can't wait. I don't read a lot of DC unless someone that I love is writing. <laughs> then I go pick it up. Welcome. I look forward to reading. Uh, and then uh, Tom, you have a pretty illustrious, incredible career under your belt, but tell us a little bit about where people may know you from best. Let's begin there. Well, um, I was uh, uh, in the, close to the beginning, I was one of the editors at Vertigo and I worked on Doom Patrol and Animal Man and Sandman and Hellblazer and Swamp Thing and a bunch of stuff, obviously. Um, after that, I went freelance and I uh, hooked on to Legion of Superheroes and Legionnaires. And I, I due, due to the incredible inertia of DC in the 90s, they let me stay on it for five years. And um, after that, we did a thing uh, called Our Man, which some people liked. That was my that was my that was considered to be my good series. And um, after that, uh, I bummed around. And for the last four years or so, I've been editor in chief at Ahoy Comics, an indie comic company that has done a bunch of projects, which I'll plug later, probably. It's quite impressive that you just like summarized 30 years in a paragraph, but like each of these projects you've worked on as an editor and a writer uh, have been pretty revolutionary. Uh, your name I know a lot from Legion of Superheroes, which of course has so many historic runs, uh, but you had such a long, uh, long history with that title. And then I love Sandman as well. You were uh, doing editor work on Sandman. Correct? I was an assistant editor for like a year of Sandman. So um, that was really something. That was really something. When I was working at Vertigo, oh, by the way, he, him. Thank you. Um, when I was at Vertigo, uh, I got to talk on the phone and read the scripts of people like Peter Milligan and Jamie Delano and Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman. And that was an unbelievable education for me. When I went, when I started writing a lot of comic scripts after that, I felt like I was grounded in a particular way that I was lucky to get. You know, back when I, uh, I, I worked on the Marvel handbooks from 2005 to 2012. And during my tenure there, especially for the last four years, part of my job was to keep an eye on any characters that were upcoming because we wanted to write handbook entries that were relevant to the content. And so I got to read the scripts a couple months in advance. And it was the same type of thing. I'm reading scripts by Brian Michael Bendis and by uh, Dan Slott and by all these different people and seeing their formatting was such an education into what it means to be a comic book writer and the different ways scripts can be put together. Uh, it's so individual per writer and per uh, per story, frankly. You could see one writer mm -hmm. vastly change the what they're doing between uh, between scripts. It was always really interesting. How did you get into the industry in the first place? Well, I... Um, I just really always loved comic books. And um, I was not, I lived in Syracuse, New York, which at the time, it might as well have been another planet from New York City. And you kind of had to live in New York City to work in comics or environs back then because um, uh, people had to hand deliver their work mostly to, to the offices. And um, 
but uh, uh, so I really didn't have an in. I, I did a local comic strip for an alternative newspaper for like 12 years. And um, one of the people reading it was Roger Stern, who liked my work, uh, the great writer of Avengers and Superman and stuff. Yeah, I love Roger, Roger Stern's Avengers run. That's one of my favorites. Yeah, yeah. Well, at this time, he had just gone over to DC and he was working on Superman and he got really overcommitted. And he was doing this two-page Superman in Action Comics Weekly. And um, uh, which if you've never read Action Comics Weekly, congratulations. But uh, the, uh, so I had done like newspaper strips and stuff. He got overcommitted and he thought maybe I could like assist him on that. And I did, like I would do like a, uh, we talk about it, then I'd do a first draft and he'd rewrite it. And I was great. I mean, that was great. I'm getting paid to write Superman and it doesn't matter to me that nobody knows it. I don't care. And um, I would have, uh, and I worked for Roger on a couple other things and he felt so guilty about it that I just loved it, but he felt guilty about it. And he, he um, ended up telling his editors about me and recommending me and stuff. So I got a few writing jobs, but then, then the break was, um, I was sort of there and on their minds when an opening came up to for, as uh, Karen Berger's assistant editor. And um, so I interviewed for that and I got it. And Karen's office was the one that eventually became Vertigo. When I got there, she was doing Sandman and Hellblazer, and she was just starting Shade the Changing Man. I oh, actually sure. worked on the first issue of that. And um, Wonder Woman, one of these things is not like the other, you know, but it was George's Wonder Woman. And um, so that was that was where it stood. And, uh, you know, and a couple of years later, we were uh, Vertigo. I, uh, I worked on a, uh, in a comic book shop in the late 90s and I read everything Marvel and then a few other things like Sandman. But even the books I haven't read are, uh, the covers at least, are permanently like imprinted in my brain because I would sort them on the shelves all the time. So when you mentioned these books, I can picture the logos of the covers, even though uh, I haven't read some of them. Um, uh, uh, Josh and Derek, of course, jump in anytime with any questions. But Tom, I want to ask you a little bit of focused work about your Marvel work which maybe is not what you are most known for, but you have a pretty uh, historic run with uh, some of the characters for Marvel as well. You've done a lot of work there over the years, uh, including up to pretty recently. Um, and there's a lot of work in, uh, in Spider-Man and Punisher and a lot of other places, but I want to focus my questions today a little bit, since this is an X-Men podcast, a little bit on some of your X-adjacent work, if that's okay. And you didn't have time to prep for this, and I realized you haven't written some of these books in quite some time. Now, the the uh, the idea to invite you first came to me. We did a lengthy two hour plus episode on uh, the character Quicksilver on my podcast a while back. Mm -hmm. And I was rereading all of his uh, his chronology as much as I could find. Uh, and then, of course, your Quicksilver series popped up. And that's where I thought, oh, I should look up Tom. And let's talk about this. Uh, Quicksilver got his own series. It only ran for 11 issues. You wrote the first six, if I'm remembering correctly. And That's all of this, right. all of this happened right after uh, the onslaught incident, where all of the main superheroes got sucked into the other universe, where the image guys, right, uh, took over and did those bizarre runs <laughs> for a year on the Fantastic Four and Captain America and the Avengers. Uh, and Quicksilver, during a time when he's kind of lost everything, uh, launched his own title. Tell me a little bit about 
how Quicksilver happened and some of the work that you might recall uh, during your, your time on that run. Well, it was a brief period when it looked like I might uh, become very successful. <laughs> I was on the Wizard Top 10 writers list once. <laughs> and um, uh, so Marvel just sort of suckered themselves into seeing what this guy Tom Fire is about. And um, so I got, I, they asked uh, that I, right around the same time they had two offers for me. One was Marvel Team Up Revival. And the other one was the Quicksilver book, which was actually Quicksilver and the Knights of Wondegore. They wanted Quicksilver to be in a book with the Knights of Wondegore. Oh, so they came up with that idea. That was part of the pitch. Oh, yeah. I said, they said, we want Quicksilver in a monthly book with the Knights of Wondegore. And if I'd had the nerve, I would have said, why? Let me pause you really quick before you continue. So uh, for our longtime listeners, you will have known Scarlet Witch and Quicksilver are tied to Mount Wondegore, where the High Evolutionary lives. Uh, on this mountain, which has connections to the Elder God Chaton, which we don't even need to focus on, uh, the High Evolutionary has uh, has evolved a group of different types of animals into human-animal hybrids, and they all have different identities and human consciousness. Uh, they're called the Knights of Wondegore or the New Men often. So in Tom's book with Quicksilver, we see Quicksilver leading a team. It's actually a really fun team of, of different animal-themed knights. Uh, so yeah, please proceed from there, Tom. All right. My memories of this, the Marvel stuff of that period did not last very long for me. And it was quite a while ago. So my memories are spotty. And sure. I haven't gone back and read it like you probably have. But um I remember the main things I remember is that Quicksilver is leading this team and he's not a people person or even an animal people person. <laughs> and um, he's uh, and he's with uh, Crystal, his wife, if I remember correctly. And one scene I remember doing is that they go to dinner at, uh, where the Inhumans are, and they've got, and Crystal's a member of the royal family, and they have to eat dinner with them. And that Chris, Quicksilver is so nervous being around his in-laws that he eats his meal in like a split second. And that's kind of the only gag I remember from that whole series. But I, I was proud of that one. Well, the Knights of Wondegore is a really unique approach, but Quicksilver had been been written as just a supervillain asshole for a long time. And your story right. almost seemed to be trying to redeem him or make him a hero again. Uh, do you do you recall uh, uh, kind of being given that that incentive to make him a, a character people like again instead of this kind of crazy villainous guy? Well, he was a star of the book, so he was going to be a good guy. Um, and there were, I mean, he had been an Avenger. He was always like prickly to everybody, but he really was protective of his sister and right. he had like good qualities. And um, so it didn't seem to me like we had to invent a lot of good qualities for him. And the fact that he was so prickly with people meant that it was, that was an entry into what could have been or might've been a lot of good scenes. So uh, I don't remember thinking that we were going to make him different from what he was. I'd been reading him since I was a kid and he was, he went right from being in the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants to being in the Avengers. Right. So 
Uh, and that had been, I mean, that was a long time ago. Uh, Josh, we got to talk about Quicksilver a little bit last time. Have you ever read this solo series? Oh, gosh. Uh, no, unfortunately. Um, but it sounds right up my alley. I love Quicksilver and the Inhumans in particular. I just think it's such a funny interplay because he considers himself like royalty on some level. He's a little pompous at times. <clears throat> and so for him to have to interact with real space royalty is like always a fun clash because <laughs> they don't care. Yeah, I, I, I sort of had him like sort of, he, he does think a lot of himself and he does feel like kind of royalty. But like a lot of guys, when he gets around the in-laws, he just clams right up. Like he's so nervous around his in-laws. Well, and he, he, he and Crystal have hardly had the easiest history, right? She cheated, they split up. <laughs> In your series, right. they're kind of trying to reconcile again for the first time. And it's, yeah, it's, it's a big part of their story. And I just remember trying to imagine how it feels to go to the dinner table and your father-in-law is wearing a mask. <laughs> uh and uh and derek are you a quicksilver fan uh, i like quicksilver in the x-men like you know the old x-men and uh no i followed him into the avengers and i think the one of the first times i'd seen him was in uh john burns fantastic four um when they moved to Tillin to the blue area of the moon and so no he's I don't know that he's ever changed his personality, but I mean, you know, do Dr. Doom got a 2099 series of his own too. So, I mean, there's lots of people who are just anti-heroes who, uh, or, or villains who can, you know, you can do things with them and make it fun. Uh, well, since you just mentioned it, that's a great transition. Marvel also back in the nineties relaunched, uh, or not relaunched, launched a, a group of titles called 2099. It was kind of the idea of our characters in a hundred years. Uh, and they were, played off of characters but very different so spider-man 2099 is very different than peter parker x-men 2099 was a completely different type of thing and it was pretty popular in fact we're seeing steve orlando doing uh, a relaunch on those books right now celebrating the 30th anniversary in the comics uh but tom you got to write one in particular x-men adjacent title called x nation does that ring a bell at all it does it does i got to work with um umberto ramos Who's so incredible. Uh, I, I know him most from Spider-Man, but yeah, he's he's an, an incredible artist. He's unbelievable. He uh, Before he worked with me, he drew Impulse, which was a great Mark Wade comic about uh, the Flash's descendant from the future. I forget what he was. Like He might have been. Anyway, uh, Humberto did an amazing job on that, and he did an amazing job on this, on X Nation. Um, Joey Cavalieri was the editor. He called me in. I knew Joey. I'll, I'll talk for a minute about Joey if I can. Yeah, please. I met him. I went to, um, Joey was a editor at DC Comics and a writer at DC Comics mostly. Going back to, I don't know, the early 80s maybe, maybe even the late 70s. But anyway, he was, I met him. I went to an art opening in New York City uh, at this, uh, I know what it was, Bill Griffith who did Zippy the Pinhead was, had a new book and he was signing books at a nightclub in New York. So my friend and I drove down to New York City to go to this to get Bill Griffith's autograph on a book. And um, uh, there was this guy there with a, wearing a leather jacket with a big Superman S on the back. And um, 
I ended up meeting him and it was Joey Cavalieri and we talked for about 15 minutes and he was really nice. And we talked about DC comics and all this stuff. And then about nine years later, I was uh, hired at DC and they took me around the hallway to like meet people who work there and we get to Joey's office. I'm about to introduce myself and he looked up and he said, Tom, I'd met him like once for 15 minutes, nine years earlier. <laughs> so <laughs> he's a great guy. <laughs> That's a wonderful um, thing to be remembered that way. Yeah, it really is. But any, especially just your first tour on the DC Comics offices, it was, it was nice. But anyway, so he, years later after that, he hired me to, to do this comic and, uh, he had so many ideas. It's not the kind of editing I like to do, but he had so many ideas that I really respected what he was doing. And he had ideas for the characters in X Nation, who they could be and stuff. And I used some of his ideas. And um, I think he gave Umberto a lot of great feedback mm -hmm. that he really liked. And then we're, I think we're about to do issue three or four and um, they laid Joey off. Mm. So I got on the phone with Umberto and uh, back, uh, uh, and he's like, well, we can't work on this book anymore. And I'm like, you're right. So we just quit because they fired our guy, you know, mm. the guy who was the heart and soul of the book. So I don't remember how many issues I did, but it feels like it must've been three. Uh, I, I read, I don't remember which one you left on. I didn't make that note. Yeah, yeah. I reread the series, but I didn't uh, uh, this week. But I didn't pay attention to um, what point you left on. I apologize. People have asked me in recent years, and I apologize if it's you. But they've asked me in recent years, like how certain dangling plot threads we're going to resolve in X Nation. And I'm like, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and no, that wasn't it. me. I, I haven't asked you that question. <laughs> I try to say it really nicely because um, I appreciate people who are interested. But, uh, you know, it was three stories like, what, 26 or seven years ago? I don't sure. know, something like that. Part of the fun, as, as I'm interviewing lots of writers, part of the fun of having books that are a little bit off the mainstream is you can get away with a little more. You got the Knights of Wonder Gore or a bunch of mutant kids mm -hmm. in the future, and you can do all kinds of stories. You also got to work on one of my favorites from my college years, uh, the Marvel Apes, which is so much mm -hmm. fun. Uh, Marvel that. launched a whole universe of ape-themed uh, heroes, which they've done with They've done it as babies and they've done it as zombies. And here we are with the Marvel apes universe. Everyone's a monkey. <laughs> There's some, some bizarre stories told with a lot of kind of one shots. Tell us a little bit about your work with Marvel apes. I did these little backup stories. And uh, what I remember is the ape watcher was like <laughs> monitoring ape realities and stuff. And I really kicked myself over that for a long time because I could have used the real watcher. He does multiverses. But I was so like enamored of doing the Ape Watcher. But it oh, would have been better with the real Watcher. If you're in an Ape universe, I totally want an Ape Watcher. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. So, you know, the Watcher takes everything really seriously. So that was fun. That's easy to do. 
Um, I haven't read any of those stories since they were new. So if you want to refresh my memory about anything. No, there's a lot of just really fun things. And I, I think uh, we'll post some images as we're as we're promoting this episode, mm -hmm. just of the different eight versions of Marvel characters. I think it's always just fun to remind people how many different fringe areas of the universe there are. Uh, Derek or Josh, did you guys ever read Marvel Apes? Oh, gosh, the... I checked out of comics in the mid 90s and came back uh, about 2010. And so there's a gap there for me. Oh, uh, there's a big gap there. Yeah, and there isn't there. I, uh, uh, I love a chance to write something that's supposed to be funny. And, you know, the big two, there are not a huge amount of opportunities for that. So I, Marvel Apes was wonderful that way, I thought, for me. Uh, Josh, what were you going to say a moment ago? No, those covers stood out to me so much. Uh, if I can recall. Um, and like, you know, Marvel Zombies is like obviously its own thing, but not my cup of tea necessarily. But apes, I can get behind. I'm a big Planet of the Apes guy. I've seen every one of the classics like a dozen times. So like, this is totally my speed. And I love the idea of an ape watcher. I think that's superior to an actual watcher. Thank you. Want to. And uh, yeah, there's a bunch of monkey themed characters in Marvel already. And some of them got to tie over with the apes. Gibbon was a big part of it. And then there were kind mm -hmm. of weird, uh, there's there's some weird one shots that showed up along the way, like the Prime 8 special, which is a team in the Marvel 8s universe, right? Instead of Primates, you get the Prime 8s, like it's the it's like eight characters on a team. There's so many punny, terrible, wonderful things. Uh, ape Speedball is a big part of it for a long time. There's some crazy stories that kind of reflect everything that was happening. So uh, yeah, if you want some fringe stuff, go look for uh, Marvel Apes. There have not been a lot of tie-ins to the regular Marvel universe with the exception of the Spider-Man character, Spider-Monkey, who uh, has crossed over with uh, with regular Spidey a couple of times, at least. I think he died during the, the Moreland and the Inheritors storyline. I think they ate the soul out of Spider-Monkey, if I'm recalling. That's <laughs> <It's> terrible. <laughs> yeah, Dan Slott did this crazy epic story with every alternate version of Spider-Man ever. Uh, which was pretty intense, and a lot of them died tragically. But it was a uh, it was a crazy fun storyline. Well, the one with the giant robot lived, I hope. Yeah, yeah. The uh, uh, the the it's the kid on the giant robot. I forgot his name for a minute. I think he's just called Spider Man. Uh, yeah, Spider Man. It's the Japanese TV show from the seventies. Have you yeah, guys ever got, seen that? He, I have never watched it. No, he's got the giant uh, robot with the giant great. sword. It's like the size of a skyscraper. Yeah, it's great. It's great. He's like a demon from hell or something. Oh, that's fantastic. Spider-Man. It's just, but he's like Spider-Man. He shoots webs and stuff. And he's got this very dramatic sense of justice. One more, uh, on the topic of Spider-Man, one more series that you got to do for Marvel was the House of M version of Spider-Man. So when, uh, when Scarlet Witch rewrote reality to be kind of a mutant world during the time when she went mad, uh, all of the characters were brought into this world dominated by mutants, including Spider-Man. And Tom got to tell us a story about this Spider-Man in that reality. Do you recall that series? Was it fun for you? It was. It was. Uh, it was just you know, it was a big Marvel event. I didn't get to dip my toe into too many of those. So I had, that was really fun. It was really well-conceived, I thought, across the board. A lot of crossovers, um, I don't know how they are these days, really, but um, it used to be it was rare to work in a crossover that would let you be creative. Usually you had to follow other people's ideas, but... There are a couple where you get to really create things yourself. And I always love those. 
Yeah, when you get to orchestrate new, it's fun. You get to see uh, Sentinels fighting the Green Goblin in your book as an example, which is <laughs> which is a lot of fun. Again, I'll post some images as we, as we go through this. Um, and then uh, just kind of a, to, to mention in summary as well, you got to do a couple team-up books. Uh, we got to see your Spider-Man team-up crossover with the X-Men and they face off with the Hellfire Club. You also did a, a run on Marvel team-up volume two, where we get to see Spidey team up with Generation X. Uh, which are both really fun. And a lot of X-Men readers probably have not read those series. Uh, do you recall much about those two adventures? I remember writing them. I remember uh, I wrote the Spider-Man team up with Mark Wade, who um, called me up one day and said, that beeping you hear is a truck full of money that's going to be backing up to your house. Because we're going to write <laughs> Spider-Man X-Men team up number one. And then we wrote it and it came out and it, it, we got nothing. There was but, no truck full of money. <laughs> there was no truck full of money. Still waiting for the truck full of money. <laughs> but um, it was, uh, uh, it's always great fun to write with Mark Wade because he and I like the same stuff kind of in the same ways. A lot of, and um, we've talked and worked together an awful lot and we've got a little language down. And, um, uh, it's always it's always a great job when I can work with Mark. Um, uh, Derek, go ahead. Oh, I, I had a couple of questions too for Tom, if you don't mind. Please, um, sure. Legion of Superheroes, and I know this is an X Men podcast, but Legion of Superheroes was one of my favorite titles as a kid. Um, and I've heard other writers talk about how difficult it is to do a book with that many characters. And I saw you had a lot of Legion of Superhero stuff. Um, how how did you find that? Well, you have to, you have to pace yourself and you have to, there are people every issue you have to leave out and you have to not be afraid to leave characters out. And I think that's the key right there. Okay. And then and also, I mean, there's so many, you kind of have to, it's inevitable you're going to find your favorites and lean on them a lot. And, um, but, uh, but plus, our team was, you know, it was a reboot. so. We were building, we were sort of building our way back up to the 30 member group. So it wasn't always, in the beginning, it wasn't that drastic, but it, it got there. I feel like there's some parallels with that challenge of 30 characters in Legion with what's happening in the Hickman X-Men now. Like, I mean, there are so many that you only get a smattering of them in each issue. And even though they're running, you know, eight or 10 series, you know, they're, they're following that same principle. And so sometimes you may yeah. not see somebody for quite a while. But when the Legion were originally created and, and when they originally grew into such a huge group, um, comic book storytelling was very different. Yeah. You could have one or two panels for a whole scene. So it was a lot easier to fit more stuff into it. I mean, you could have a 15 page story in the early 70s that had as much story content in it as like maybe a year of a title now. Yeah. but. The, but the year of a title now is probably a lot more fun to read because it's more, you can spread out. It's more dramatic. It's, um, but Yeah. Kieran Gillen actually did a podcast for a while called decompressed where he just talked about like, you know, comic creation and everything else. And one of the key things he was saying was just how much decompression happened to the art form over the years. Yeah. Oh, it's incredible. That's incredible. Yeah. My, where I draw the line is when, it really feels too much like a movie or a TV show. 
I'd like it to still feel like a comic book somehow. I mean, decompress all you want, but um, I don't know. Sometimes I feel like they're just sort of giving me a TV show on paper and I don't like that. Um, the uh, Just the concept of, I'm just reflecting on, you say you have five years on a title uh, as opposed to nowadays, they're like, try this. And if it sells great, we'll give you more than two two books to try it out on. You know, like a lot of, uh, a lot of writers will come up with five years of stories, but only get to tell six issues worth because the, the book tanks mm -hmm. too quickly. It's really heartbreaking, actually. Well, what happens too um, at the big two, I think particularly Marvel, is um, they'll have like, a, a, you'll set up a status quo and they'll treat it like a storyline, by which I mean um, uh, every book has to change next year go back to number one because the company has a new slogan so we need a new status quo next year so the one you're working on might be great and it might have five years of stories in it but we can't do it because we're going to change everything every year i don't know if they're still doing that now but a few years ago they were doing a lot it seems to be happening a little bit less so than maybe five or ten years ago but it's still happening for sure yeah yeah so i i think you know, they're going to run their company how they want to, and they shouldn't listen to me because I don't never listen to me when money's involved. However, uh, it's frustrating for me when you have to stop a story for business reasons. Sure. I had another question, Tom, like earlier in the podcast, you said something that, you know, was funny where you said, you know, I don't even know what you're talking about, like about something that you'd written a while back. And I think while I'm rereading the old X-Men, the 1960s X-Men, I get the sense that like so much of it was you know they're filling a printing gap right they have to have eight issues otherwise they're losing out on printing stock and some of the stuff like especially in this run here they were trying things to bump up sales and I think in another podcast recently I heard uh I think it was maybe Jerry Duggan say you know the whole process from talking to the editor writing the script to getting it done lettering and sending it to printers like 80 days and mm -hmm. if like that compressed an experience, like there's so little to hold on to, is that really like the whole thing you're making in 80 days and it's done? And then you're on to the next one? Mm, I haven't heard 80 days. I mean, back then it was a lot slower. Um, <laughs> it's a, everything's a lot faster now because, you know, you can letter a book overnight. You couldn't before. Mm -hmm. you, uh, coloring still takes some time, but not as much. Um, once you you don't have to like get film generated because it's in the colors files uh the, the processes of making the comic book take a lot less time than they used to um generally the stuff i'm working on now at ahoy and i think some of the stuff i worked on for the big two like our man i don't forget if i i've put some i don't know they're just my favorites and i don't forget anything about mm -hmm. them but um, it's you have to make a living too and I love anytime I can work on a character who was around when I was a kid I'm happy I don't care like I was happy working on Quicksilver because I was a kid when I first saw him and even though I can't remember any of these stories at that time I was writing so much I just I I would forget stories I did like instantly it seemed I once did it. I did a show one time and a guy brought me up this impulse annual set in the old West. 
And I'm like, gee, that's nice. And he says, we assign it. And I said, I don't, I didn't work on that. And he said, yes, you did. And he opened it and he pointed at my name and my name was there. And he said, it's my favorite. And I just, my heart broke. He said, it's my, he just, the way he said, it's my favorite. I just had to like go into this whole bullshit routine. Like, oh, I remember this one. It was so amazing to work on. But uh, I had literally forgotten it. And I had written it like within the past decade. <laughs> like I forgot it existed. You get to work with uh, Stuart Moore pretty closely too, right? Mm, yeah. How's Stuart? He's good. He's good. He's cooking up a new thing for Ahoy right now that is very, very funny. I, uh, I I will have to reach out to him sometime. He's done a lot of Wolverine work over the years. There's a lot we could talk about. Uh, Tom, yeah. you've got you've got a pretty impressive set of credentials uh, at Marvel and outside. Stuff we didn't even mention today, but I'll post images of. You, you did some stuff with Magneto and the Magnetic Men. Uh, you also did some stuff with Deadpool Team Up. Um, so there's there's been some really cool stuff along the way. Uh, a lot of fringe areas, but still adjacent to these characters that we love. How do you look back at your time at Marvel? Is it is it a, a fond memories or was it kind of a difficult time? Oh, it's like I said, it's always just to be able to like write a word balloon for Spider-Man. It's just that's all I care about. I don't care if somebody gave me a hard time. Really, I don't remember it that much, but. Um, my time at Marvel, I did a lot more work at DC, mm -hmm. like a lot more work at DC. I'm happy to do what I did at Marvel, but it seems like a pretty small part of my output to me. That's how it feels. Sure. Uh, and um, you may not be able to announce anything here, but recognizing this is coming out around June 20th, is there anything upcoming at Marvel we should be looking for from you? No, no, I'm, I have my... I'm the editor-in-chief of Ahoy Comics now. I don't work for anybody else. Okay, so you're just at Ahoy now. It's our company that we started. and uh, We uh, we got to interview Jim. Oh, sorry, I apologize. I was just going to say there are probably people who would get mad at me if I wrote for someone else. Sure. We got to interview yeah. June Brigman a little while back. I know she did some work Great. with you guys. June's amazing. Mm -hmm. Captain Ginger. Um, as we are wrapping up the first part of our podcast, uh, uh, Josh or Derek, any more questions for Tom? Uh, I hate to keep all my all the questions on the DC side of it, but I'm a big admirer of Our Man, and I guess I'm just kind of curious about like what compels you to that character. I think everyone has their JSA characters that are near and dear to their heart. I love Ma Hunkle, Red Tornado, um, <laughs> so I guess I'm curious why I, why Our Man. Well, um, Grant Morrison and uh, Howard Porter created him in Justice League and for like maybe an issue or maybe a scene or something, not a whole lot, but basically Grant gift wrapped him and handed him to me and said, this is, this is a hero I'd like you to write. And because um, we'd worked together before on Doom Patrol, I was his editor on Doom Patrol, which was my favorite comic book in the world. And then I got to be the editor. But, um, so anyway, Grant gave me Our Man, basically. And um, he had some ideas I ended up using and I had some ideas and it was just, I loved, I loved Our Man because first of all, it was the only 
superhero origin that's about the hero getting less powerful. Um, he had this talisman called the Whirl of God that made him basically omnipotent, but he was this android who was only like three years old. So um, he comes back to our time from the 853rd century and just decides to hang out with this group of people. And he gets rid of the Whirl of God, which greatly reduces his powers. He, but he wants to, he's a robot who wants to be human. He wants to know what it is to be human, basically, like all the other robots. So um, since he was depowering, it just seemed like a lot of things were open to be done differently. And um, we did stories where like they would defeat a villain and then invite him into their friend group instead of sending him to jail. And um, uh, the, the, the stories that were basically about hanging out in a coffee shop with your friends and your friends are all crazy. And, um, <laughs> I loved working on that. And DC was great. It didn't sell well, but we got to do it for, I think, 25 issues. Mm. So. I look forward to going back and reading Our Man. I've never read it before. Cool. I, I hope you like it. I think you will. I, I still hear good things about it from people. Well, I like you. And based on that pitch, I think I'm ready for it. Sounds amazing. Cool. <laughs> uh, okay. So with that, let's transition into today's issue review. Tom, thank you for sharing your memories and your experience. Uh, uh, what a what an impressive decades long career you've had. And it sounds like you're still doing really incredible things at Ahoy. That's wonderful. Um, uh, Josh, you're our most recent uh, Marvel writer, or at least newly published, um, and it sounds like you've got some really great stuff coming up too. And Derek, your books are coming out, so it's 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 such an honor to sit down with all three of you, like uh, watching you uh, carve your space out in your respective areas in your fields. Um, it's a good time to be a writer. Sounds like yeah, definitely. Always. Yeah. Uh, okay, so with that, let's jump in. Um, I'll give it a bit of a history recap. This is considered Juggernaut's third set of appearances. So he's appeared previously in the X-Men twice. Uh, in, the initial, uh, in the initial appearance of Juggernaut, he gets his powers in Korea from the Crimson Gem of Sidorak and the temple collapses on him. And a couple decades later, he charges toward the X-Mansion. Uh, we learn he's Professor X's brother. And at the end, the X-Men defeat him. In his second appearance, we learn Professor X has been keeping him uh, in a coma in a machine in the basement. <laughs> They end up swapping minds. It's this bizarre story that results in ultimately uh, the Juggernaut being trapped in the Crimson Cosmos. So I think part of why this uh, this character was needed right now in this issue, Professor X just died. And readers in the 60s must have just been waiting for Juggernaut to find out because it's his stepbrother that's gone. Uh, so uh, we get to see uh, Gary Friedrich tackle that story here, which is, I think, what makes it great, even though it's not that great. <laughs> we'll talk about it a little bit. Uh, now, let's talk about our thoughts on the cover. We see uh, this is the same thing where the X-Men logo is kind of highlighted softly at the top with a larger word bubble underneath. And this one, it says the end of the X-Men. And we see Juggernaut uh, ripping Angel and Iceman's pictures off of the five X-Men's pictures arranged in kind of a uh, five-part X format, which is really playing on the X-Men theme, obviously, something a lot of writers uh, really love to do. Uh, tell me about your thoughts on this cover. It says the end of the X-Men, and it looks like Juggernaut is literally tearing the team into pieces. What'd you guys think of the uh, the art on this cover? 
I, I like the art itself. Um, I think if, you know, it was 1968 and I was looking to spend 12 cents, I would have been looking at this in the spinner rack. Um, the the original X-Men logo and the way they were like just shrinking down the title to put in some sort of subtitle seems weird to me. And and I mean, if they're going to do that, like I would have liked a little more design stuff. So I really like when Neil Adams redid the, the X-Men title, but here it just seems uh, like not as striking as the art itself. Juggernaut's head's real small <laughs> on top of his massive body. Yeah, it is. <clears throat> Tom, what were you going to say? Oh, I, re I remember this. I um, one of the one of the few advantages to being ancient is that um, you've been around for a long time, and you like uh, my first issue of the X Men was Volume One, Number One. So, by the time this rolled around, this was in sixty nine, sixty eight. Right around then, I had like an eight month period where I'd outgrown comics. So I missed a lot that year. I don't remember if I bought this one, but I do remember <clears throat> seeing this general run on the stands and maybe picking up a couple and taking a pretty dim view of it. I thought that it was, it had pretty much run its course or something, or they had like B creators on it or something. It just didn't seem very good to me. Yeah. Um, but uh, also <laughs> I liked it. I like that when they all wore the same costume because they seem like some weird gang or like Devo or something. <laughs> There's something a little scary about them when they were all dressed alike, um, which I liked. So I'd love to ask for some of your views of what it was like to be a reader of this title back in the 60s. Uh, we'll get there in just a minute. Josh, did you have any <clears throat> thoughts on this cover here? Oh, gosh. Um, you know, my eye goes straight to Jean crying, which is like a very stock kind of like 60s image, right? Of like her like, this is too much for her to handle. Um, I like the emotions from each of the X-Men. It kind of implies that like, you know, they're set there, it's an emotional end and it's not like juggernaut, like beating the tar out of each of them. Um, but it's just such a funny, the end of the X-Men, it's like even funny, like lettering placement. There's some design choices going on here, but um, I'm into it. Cool. So uh, let me have uh, Derek, if you'll summarize <clears throat> the first five pages for us. I already read the credits out at the beginning. Uh, we learned in this issue, I'll, I'll open up really quickly. We saw the funeral of Professor X a few issues back, but we learned in this issue that he's buried right there at the mansion. Apparently there is a graveyard across the way. They are right on the grounds. He is right there. Uh, and then I also want to mention, just as you're getting ready to go, we met uh, the character Fred Duncan, who was the FBI agent allied with Professor X back in X-Men number two. He's never been seen again in the comics, except in the recent issues, when they go back to the stories of the X-Men's origins, we see him in the Cyclops origin story, just a couple issues back. So to see that character back here is, is uh, a deep throwback to the beginnings of the X-Men. Uh, so Derek, go ahead and, and lay out the first five pages for us. Yeah, so I mean, the funeral they had last time, uh, you know, it was as it is in a dense comic, they were rushed and had to go off and fight. Um, so they're back now um, to, you know, just sort of process some of the emotions. And it is pretty good. I think um, the splash page is good and everybody's obviously sad. And, you know, by page two, people are each going through their individual thoughts on what are they gonna do because they weren't ready to be left on their own. 
Um, and uh, then they're approached by Fred Duncan, who, uh, you know, as you said, hasn't been seen in a while. Um, and Cyclops says, okay, you know, you want to talk to us. We need someplace to talk. We're going to go back to the Xavier school. And there, instead of being able to talk with uh, Fred Duncan, the FBI agent, Foggy Nelson from Daredevil is there. And I, I have to say, I always like whenever they need a lawyer, uh, they either pick Matt Murdock or uh, Foggy because it just it's it's nice consistency in the universe. Once in a um, while, we get She-Hulk. <laughs> oh, true, true. Um, and and uh, Foggy is uh, running for district attorney, but he's got some time to uh, read Professor Xavier's will. Um, briefly, uh, the X-Men have a lot of emotional reactions, which are cool. Um, the only one to cry is Jean, but I think that's a bit of toxic masculinity going on. Um, but basically the school and all its stuff is being left with um, uh, the, the five students and Scott is the trustee. And you had mentioned in your podcast, Chad, you know, like Xavier's funeral was pretty darn small. Um, like there were five people there and it was interrupted by a speedster. And so um, <laughs> here somebody even makes the comment, like uh, Hank makes the comment, he really had no one but us. We were his only family. Um, and so it wasn't just our impression in that last podcast you had, it was, it's legit. Um, and after Foggy goes away, they're about to find out what does the FBI want with them when we go to the Crimson Universe where we see the juggernaut. And all of a sudden, bam, he's teleported back from that magic place into the last place he'd been, which, as you'd mentioned, uh, you know, Charles was trying to keep him, you know, drugged up for a while and tried to change brains with him and other stuff, trying to cure him of this Sidorak possession and stuff. And and by the way, I'm, I also mispronounce Sidorak. I call it Sidorak. <laughs> and I'm going to blame that on being Canadian as well. So I'm into <laughs> at it. Least there's, there's no Magneto in this issue. <laughs> Uh, if we jump back to page one for just a second, can we talk about the fashion? Because Jean's coat is giving me life. Oh, I'm so happy you brought this up. I don't, <laughs> I don't know what you call this kind of pattern, but it's like it really pops, like the way that it's, it's colored. Well, the cut on it, like it's above the skirt line with the bare legs and the blue boots. Like I'm super into it. I don't comment on fashion often, but I love Jean's look here. I don't know if it's appropriate, like to wear to a few, like a. Uh, a graveyard, but um, you know, she looks great. Yeah, they're, Stopper. they're all dressed like a roll of lifesavers for a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> uh, whose coat is worse, Cyclops's or Angel's? I actually like Angel's coat, but I don't have any taste, so I might be wrong. <laughs> I think they're, I don't know, I think they're both a little garish. Oh, I like, you know, I like Bobby's coat in the back with the purple. That's that's the sweet spot for me. I'd wear that coat. Fair. Fair. I'm just going to wear jeans. <laughs> to Tom's comment on the garish colors, like for people who are in the comic industry, is that a, a product of the sort of printing process quality? Like, for example, they had started the Hulk gray and then they found that it was too muddy. So that was why they turned him green. Um, is, is this like for the time, the 1968 printing, did they need to make it this colorful just to make sure that the printing was clear? They um, had a lot fewer colors available to them, shades available to them. Um, and uh, that's one thing. The other thing is 
it wasn't quite the art form it is today. And um, they, a lot of them largely colored for contrast, just so you could uh, distinguish the figures from the background and from each other. Um, they were, they were, they were, I think, directed to color for contrast. And so if everybody popped and you were kind of looking at the right things, um, uh, then I think it was a successful color job back then. I really love Foggy Nelson. If you go back and read 60s Daredevil, there's a long run where he's running for district attorney. It causes all kinds of drama as lots of criminals get involved. It's a huge plot in that story. So we get that mention here. I think on page three in the last panel, uh, we learned that Professor X has left most of his estate to be managed by Cyclops. Uh, and, and Cyclops is thinking to himself, that would be the fun to help gifted children, mutants like ourselves. I believe this is the first time the word gifted is used in the X-Men comics. And for so long, we see the school called uh, the Xavier School for Gifted Youngsters, right? I was in the gifted program in elementary school, which they meant to mean, I think, children who had slightly higher intelligence is kind of how it was used back then, at least. Uh, and so I think this is the first. Uh, so uh, listeners, if you know differently, let me know. But I think this is the first time we see the word gifted used. Um, the uh, the shitty part of all of this is Xavier's fucking hiding in the basement <laughs> while his will is read and he's listening to everyone cry. And Jean knows it. So either she's really sad about lying or she's an amazing actress as the single tear rolls down her cheek. Because <laughs> later we learned she she was in on it the whole time. Um, Tom, are you a Juggernaut fan? Am I a Juggernaut fan? Yeah. Who isn't? What do you like about Juggernaut? Well, that first story is great where he's just, he's this unstoppable force just moving forward, moving forward. And he's like, coming closer to them and coming closer and you're dreading it and it, it's uh that was a wonderful story he might be a one-story character i'm not sure i think comics have more one-story characters than we give it credit for i always thought of the silver surfer that way like his first story was so great that uh what that it was almost wrong to keep him around there's been long stints of Juggernaut on the X-Men, like as a as a member of the team. He's, he's had a lot of track history over the years. What did he do on the team? Just like crash into things? <laughs> uh, you see, you see, uh, in fact, there's a new book coming out. In fact, the first issue was just released prior to our picking up this podcast called The Legion of X and Juggernaut's on the team. So he uh, he's kind of an ally with the X-Men, sometimes in kind of a bounty hunter format. Sometimes he's trying to be a hero. But he's been part of multiple different uh, versions of the X teams over the years. What turned him nice? I think he and Charles have tried to mend the fence a little bit. Uh, I think there's a lot of time where a lot of stories where he's just tired of being the guy that knocks shit over and wants to, you know, a different type of life. Uh, so I think it kind of depends on the story. There's uh, there's different motivations given to him at different times. Uh, um, with a question about this story, actually, yeah, what we're reading now which is, am I misremembering or is this already the second time Professor X was dead? This is the first time that he's been believed dead. All right, what didn't, so wasn't there something about that in like the Lucifer story early on? So in the Lucifer story, there was a period of time where he was kidnapped. There was also a brief All period right. of time yeah. where he lost yeah. his powers, but 
Uh, and then he was kidnapped by Factor Three for a while too. Uh, and so I think uh, I think this is the first time they actually and I think the writers intended him to be dead until, you know, we're going to see it a little while. They bring it back, obviously. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, yeah, this is the first time he's been believed dead. I think they, Roy Thomas was trying to drum up sales, thought maybe this is a, a chance to get the, the characters away. Mm -hmm. I well, mean, oh, go ahead, Josh. Oh, it's just a different era where the threat of Professor X dying is enough to goose sales because, you know, Professor X has died so many times and been through so many different permutations. The words have no meaning anymore, um, which is kind of what the Krakoa era is about, right? Like death is kind of meaningless for the X-Men at this point. Yeah. Um, so it's funny to see everyone react so, so emotionally to Professor X dying. So Tom, will you take us through the next five pages? Tell us what happens in the story. Yeah, if I may, I just have one thing to say about the first five pages. Please, yeah, yeah. That is that to make the FBI agent wait until after the will reading to tell him what he wants to say is like the most dickish thing I've ever seen. <laughs> you can tell us your urgent message, but first we have to go to a will reading, which you're invited to for some reason. But I guess, I mean, it... it it uh, goes to the comics form, which is the reading of a will is going to take fewer panels than a bunch of backstory that an FBI agent is, is telling you. So I can I, see it, but I, uh, I'm just going to posit my theory now. I think Professor X was hiding in the basement and he summoned uh, the FBI agent to come to the house to disband the X-Men. He's like, I don't want them around. They're going to bother me. I'm going to tell this guy to make him go away. <laughs> <laughs> what a terrible thing to believe leave well he's uh, not the nicest guy <laughs> no, he's, not. he's not neither is the juggernaut because as we start on page six he's uh breaking a machine he's smashing the machine that brought him back to earth so that he can never be sent back to the crimson place which uh, you got it i mean you can't blame him for that the next panel i think is really big because the X-Men hear the noise and the boys there, Angel, Cyclops, and Beast um, are like running to see what, what it is. And for uh, the first time, well, Beast says, Plaudit's deputy leader for your expedient excuse to free us from Agent Duncan. So I think this is the first time someone calls Cyclops a leader. Um, but more important is Angel's balloon where he says, we already have leader man. He calls him leader man, which is a Marvel thing to call somebody. And I actually, I think I can see the fingerprints of Roy Thomas on that panel. So uh, I, I am the editor in chief, by the way, at Ahoy Comics, and I cannot get anyone to call me leader man. <laughs> but so they, 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 uh, confront the juggernaut and then there's this fabulous scene that goes on for pages that is going to prevent me from talking for a long time about this comic and it's basically he's like i'm here to kill professor x and they say he's already dead and he says no where is he i'm going to kill him and they say he's dead and he says of course he's not dead show me where he is so i can kill him and they go back and forth for pages like uh just contradicting each other like the argument clinic on Monty Python. So, and <laughs> while while um, the juggernaut is saying he's 
alive because he has to be because I have to be the one that kills him. He's wrecking stuff. He's like punching machines. And then uh, when they come after him, he let, oh, Iceman covers him with ice and it doesn't stop him. He's still mad and he's still, it doesn't shut him up. He still has all these word balloons when he's covered with ice and he breaks out of it and he throws ice at Iceman, which I think shouldn't hurt him. And then uh, at the bottom of page nine, I'm going till page 10, at the bottom of page nine, he's like, I am gonna find and destroy Professor X. You can't tell him anything. And this is an important page because uh, when we get to page 10, because he comes upon, the juggernaut comes upon Agent Duncan. And after the humiliation of being forced to sit through a will reading when he has an urgent thing to say to the X-Men. Um, he is now like uh, uh, bashed into the ceiling and thrown through a window by the juggernaut. So he's just having a shit issue, Agent Duncan. <laughs> and uh, after that, the uh, uh, juggernaut stomps off and he's like, well, I'm gonna find Professor X. He can't be dead. And um, the X-Men recover from being hit by him. And uh, Angel starts flying. He's like, let's go get him. And so here I pass the baton. So in, in, these, in this section, the most shocking thing, I think, is how savage Juggernaut is with Duncan. He's like slams him into the ceiling and fucking throws him out the window. Like, this guy's lucky to be alive, man. He is really lucky to be alive. I can't believe he's alive. I was shocked to learn later in the issue that he is still standing and also like, you know, ready to get back to business. This did not phase him whatsoever. Or, or he came to give the X-Men his blessing, but after Juggernaut smashed him into the ceiling, he's like, fuck this, you guys have to disband. <laughs> I'm over it, man. Uh, uh, Derek and Josh, what did you think of this fight scene? Um, it's, it's pretty delightful watching Iceman almost get the upper hand on Juggernaut. Um, his powers are working to a degree, but then Juggernaut focuses his strength through his like fingertips or something. I'm not really, I'm, I'm a little unclear as to how that works, but um, Bobby put up a good fight for a page and that, that's really the best any of them could offer at this point. In Juggernaut's first appearance, he has like an aura, like a force field around him and he can kind of just flex it and it'll like shake everything off. Uh, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's like his powers have changed a little bit. He's still uh, very strong and very determined. I I, uh, I think like I've never considered the original X Men particularly strong. Like that's part of their charm. I think that they they're they have to work hard. Certainly no match for Juggernaut. But I mean, in this sequence that Tom had just read us, I think my biggest takeaway, other than the Iceman fun, is you know Jean doesn't have a role, and in fact she's got the damsel in distress role. And luckily later in the issue, I think that's redeemed. But I think it's uh, you know. Adding to the the point on the cover, it's it's uh it's not an awesome look for the the creative team, but you know, in terms of well representing the women. Uh, so Josh, got us through the uh, pages eleven through fifteen. Let's wrap the story up. Sure. So the fight continues um, with Angel doing his super move, which is flying and punching something. And I've read more than a few of these kind of classic X Men comics, and I've never seen this move effective on any any foe. He loves to swing by and punch something and it never quite lands. So um, Juggernaut kind of slaps 
uh, Warren and falls into the ground. And then Jean Grey is actually quite useful in this sequence because she lifts up the juggernaut and prevents him from moving forward, which is something I haven't seen used a lot. So I was like, oh, this is like actually a good use of her ability. And then Bobby ruins it by creating a giant ball of ice so that Beast can throw it at the juggernaut. <laughs> like this is like the best they can offer, but that's the charm of the classic five, right? Like, like you said, they're not particularly powerful. Um, and just a quick reference, as he makes the ice ball, he says, grab this king-size baseball and make like Bob Gibson. So Bob Gibson was a famous African-American uh, baseball player back in the 60s mm -hmm. who was uh, a big Hall of Famer for a long time. So feel free to look up his career if you'd like. We get these dated <laughs> references sometimes. I wonder if this is like a proto-fastball special. <laughs> yeah, kind of. <laughs> They're like, this is going to be a big hit. Kids are going to love throwing this ice ball. Yeah, um, that's funny. So then Juggernaut unleashes what to me is a new power. He he radiates this energy field and he shoots out. They kind of look like speedballs balls. They kind they're you know kind of these round orbs of energy, and they're quite destructive. They blow up a tree, and so Cyclops is like, we better not get hit by those. And he tries to zap them with his optic blast. It's totally ineffective. And then Gene. In like this really serious pose, Jean decides she's gonna use a mental bolt against Juggernaut. Um, and it's quite effective. It really like, it kind of paralyzes him for a bit. It's this sharp psychic ravaging of the Juggernaut. And um, just coincidentally, because Warren Angel's in front of him, Juggernaut grabs Angel and threatens to kill him unless Professor X stops using his psychic powers because Juggernaut doesn't believe A, the Professor X is dead and B, the gene is the one capable of using the psychic power on him. Um, so they're kind of at a standstill until um, our boy Juggernaut kind of mysteriously phases away and goes back to the Crimson dimension or- Crimson Cosmos, yeah. Crimson Cosmos, which I haven't seen. I'm sure it's been retconned into something a little more uh, edgy than the Crimson Cosmos, nope. but- it's still oh, the Crimson Cosmos. Still the Crimson Cosmos. <laughs> 50 years later, and here we are. Um, that's wonderful. And so um, good news is that Angel isn't dead, um, even though Juggernaut was ready to squeeze the life out of him to get closer to Xavier. And so they're recovering, and our boy Duncan reappears as well. He's perfectly fine. His hair looks great, even though he was just smashed through a window. Um, and he has an offer for the X-Men, basically. He wants to recruit them and split them up. Um, and so his theory, if I remember, it is they're more effective to take on the various mutant evil threats if they can, they're spread out in this way, um, which is also like a weird way to think about it because the X-Men were basically useless against the Juggernaut collectively. So splitting them up makes it seem like they'd be even less effective than before. Um, but it's a great moment because it's one of those classic, the X-Men are gone, or the X-Men are over. And so we cut from there to a short time later and the team has decided, or Cyclops has decided for the team that they're gonna split up. And so we get a couple of moments of everyone saying their goodbyes. Bobby's particularly saddened by this. Um, and everyone's just ready to move on to the next chapter of their lives. There's a good bit at the very end where, um, Scott is like, oh, um, actually, am I going to stand here and let the only girl I ever love walk out of my life? And <laughs> basically, like, 
yeah, I guess so. That's going to happen. We'll see what, you know, we'll see what happens next, gang. Um, <laughs> so our, our fabulous five are kind of uh, are scattered to the wind working for the government. You're almost like, oh, yeah, Cyclops and Jean have feelings for each other because we haven't talked about it in quite some time. Uh, a couple of key moments during this. Number one, you commented on Juggernaut's energy globules. Yes. Uh, I reread all of Juggernaut's history before we did the focused episode on him. This is the only time this power appears. He's got these like little balls that move off of him and kind of bounce people back. It's strange. Maybe, I mean, if we're looking for a reason, maybe in the interdimensional transfer somehow as he returned from the Crimson Cosmos, he briefly got powers. Because a couple panels later, he's also vulnerable to telepathy from Jean, which is, uh, she's newly telepathic here, but she's sending off a psychic bolt that should not affect him because he's got his helmet on. So the Crimson Cosmos has done something wonky to him. We don't know exactly what's happening. Um, shortly after this, Juggernaut's going to appear in a Doctor Strange book in which he comes down to back to Earth as like a really old man, uh, which is this premise of magically, he's, he's lasted in this other dimension for so long that he's aged, but then he reverts back to his normal age magically. This guy's been through some shit at this point. By the time he comes back to Claremont's run, he's ready to settle down with Black Tom and just live happily in their little closeted <laughs> gay life together. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a, it's a poor, the poor guy, I almost feel for him. Uh, Derek and Tom, did you have thoughts on the, uh, on the final battle here before we discuss the X-Men's dissolution? <laughs> Well, I have, I have a couple of objections. Uh, one is when Juggernaut is killing the angel, he refers to him as a clod. And I think Juggernaut is a lot more of a clod than the angel could be. <laughs> it's like the angel calling him like a, a trust fund kid or something. I think it's really wrong to call the angel a clod, especially if you're Juggernaut. And the other objection I have is... I don't know why the FBI can order the X-Men to disband, um, but I guess they can. It is Does a strange, yeah, it is a strange thing. It's a weird story. It's almost like this guy's speaking with the, uh, with the authority of Professor X. Uh, no, he's, he's speaking with the authority of, um, doesn't he, didn't he say that there's some, oh yeah. He's the head of the FBI's Special Mutant Division. And he says, I order you to disband. Yeah, and so to, to that point, um, Hank brings yeah. that up later. He yeah. says that orders like this are unquestionably unconstitutional. So there right. is like a gray area as to whether or not the FBI can even do this. Right. Yeah. And then Scott sort of pulls it out of his butt that if Duncan's telling them, then it must be something the professor would have wanted, which I don't get. But yeah, it's if the X-Men no longer exists as a team, I just have to accept that. It's a weird story. One of the things that's most profound about this issue, number one, we had a huge storyline that wrapped up in another title right before this. So the three issues before this, they're fighting Magneto. And then it ends in an Avengers story instead of here, which is oh, which is right. crazy. Yeah. And we had to go over to Avengers <laughs> 53, which is our last episode, uh, which we covered with Casey Counselor. But uh, this is also the really first big status quo shift in X-Men's history. Now, in a, I think it's X-Men number seven. They graduate for the first time, but it doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> There's because they still operate as a team. But in this one, we see them breaking apart, like the team dis dissolves. 
Uh, and we see, I think, in, in uh, modern continuity or the last 30 or 40 years, we see regular seismic changes, like a series ends and it's a whole new status quo. And this is kind of the mm -hmm. first big status quo sh shakeup, if you will. Professor X dies and now the teams are breaking apart. Clearly, they're trying to jump, drum up some sales, but it's, uh, it's pretty consequential uh, in the longer run of things mm -hmm. as the first time that happens. Um, any thoughts on these final pages or just on that? Derek, go ahead. I was wondering if this is the first major death in Marvel Comics, because this is only about six or seven years into the Marvel Universe. Uh, and Bucky. But was he really? He was retroactively dead. Right. Yeah. I think Jun uh, Juniper. We had some weird moments in the 60s where big status quo would change. So, for example, Daredevil outs himself to Karen Page as Matt Murdock fairly early on in the Daredevil series. And you're like, oh, because that kind of stuff doesn't happen. Mm -hmm. But I think the first big death, if we don't count Bucky, is Uncle Ben uh, in, in Spider-Man, right? Which but is another huge one. Again, I don't think there was an investment by the reader in that. And we're, whereas here we're like 40 issues in. I, I, I would, I'm wondering if the first major death was probably the um, Pharaoh Lad in Legion of Superheroes, which I okay. think happened two years before. Yeah. And Marvel screwed around with it uh, kind of safely by having a couple people die in the Sergeant Fury comic. Oh, okay. Sort of a low stakes thing. Mm -hmm. But there's a, one of the Howlers actually died in an early issue. And there was, um, and then there was a much actually fondly remembered issue where, uh, where Nick is gonna propose marriage to Pamela Holly and she's killed in like a V2 buzz bomb or something. Hmm. And that, that was a kind of a big thing. Um, but not, it, it wasn't like killing one of the superheroes. It wasn't mm -hmm. like that. Yeah, so certainly one of the very first, I'd have to do a deeper search to find out, but uh, I think maybe the first major hero to die at the very least. I, I thought so. I couldn't think of any others. And like you've said, there have been other seismic shifts. Like I think when the Avengers lineup changed. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, that that, that I thought was seismic, but it's not the that same was. as it, it is a different seismic. The the, oh, the other comment. Oh, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say around this time, the Doom Patrol died too. So the X Men. Uh, we're we're going to have a lot to say about the Doom Patrol, by the way, in a couple of episodes when Arnold Drake takes over the book. Uh, we've got some interesting <laughs> comparisons and some things to talk about there. So I have some some content prepared on that, um, and some some people coming on. Uh, so I think the X Men disbanding, I think, must have represented like a huh, okay, here's something new in the book. For the next three issues, things get very very stupid. And very, very, it's almost the worst of the 60s run, which is saying something because we've seen some shit along the way. But then in issue number 50, we see uh, we see the team up of Arnold Drake with Jim Steranko, uh, and everything changes with the introduction of Polaris or Lorna Dane in the book. Um, right. so, so for the next three issues, uh, listeners, just have a good time. We're having a fun 60s ride. But then we get to go into some new content, which is pretty powerful, actually. And the rest of the 60s run kind of stays there. Um, before we do the final five pages, uh, Tom, let me ask you, as, as a reader back in the 60s who was picking up these books, what made the X-Men special? There was a whole world of, of heroes, even Marvel heroes back then, but what made the X-Men stand out? Why did you like them back then? Well, I think it was um, something I alluded to earlier, which they all had the same costumes. They look like this kind of intimidating bunch of, like, like an intimidating science fiction gang. 
to me. Um, and they all had the same origin. Um, that was new. I don't, I don't remember. Well, the FFL had the same origin, but this was different. Like everybody was a mutant. And, well, I guess it wasn't different. <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> I was a, I'm of the opinion that the uh, Doom Patrol and the X-Men are so similar because they were independently riffing on the Fantastic Four. Um, so if you're gonna if you're gonna riff on the Fantastic Four, there's a few obvious ideas. Like your your leader's smart, so put him in a wheelchair. You know. And they may also have been riffing off the Doom Patrol, which we'll talk about next time. <laughs> yeah, I, I think they I really think they 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 arrived independently at it. I really do. I do too, but it's fun to theorize. <laughs> <laughs> it is, it is. But it was I get I did like them and I also like them because they were young. Um, they were, I think they were the first team where just about everybody was young. Who was your favorite back then? Oh, you know, I was just a dumbass cis white kid, you know, it was probably Cyclops. <laughs> I feel like a lot of people in the 60s said beast because, you know, he had the big words that made him stand out a little bit. And the feet. Yeah, the feet. The beast was great. He, I did like the beast. So let me take the second story. I'm going to wrap this up kind of quickly and then we can talk about it for a few minutes. Uh, mm -hmm. There's ultimately some very uncomfortable and profound content that we're about to cover in one of these kind of throwaway backup stories that we keep talking about. So this issue is called, and then there were two, it's written by Gary Friedrich, same writer, uh, with art by George Tusca and John Tartaglione and letters by Artie Simic. Now we've seen in previous issues, we're flashing back to Iceman, who is reportedly about 15 here. We've learned that his mutant powers developed, his parents know about them, that he's kind of just trying to blend into his town. So we see him taking a girl named Judy on a date to see West Side Story, which is about the gayest thing you can do, <laughs> especially if you're dating a Judy. But when they leave the theater, they get attacked by some local teens. Iceman uses his powers to protect himself. And then a mob ends up storming his house. Uh, he ends up getting arrested and tossed in jail. And in the last ish, uh, episode, we see Cyclops break him out of jail because this mob is coming literally to the jail with the intent to kill them. So as this issue starts, Iceman and Cyclops are both out of power. They are, even though Iceman's still iced up and they all know he's Bobby, uh, they're out of power. And this mob is there literally with guns in their arms, with ropes in their hands, with the intent to not only beat up these teens, but to hang them. They're, they're planning a lynching. And I'm gonna talk about that in just a second. We, uh, we see uh, Cyclops and uh, Iceman are defended by the local sheriff and the mob basically just pulls the sheriff off to the side. They call him a mutant lover, knock him down and then drag the teens off anyway, literally wrap ropes around them. We literally see them throw the ropes over a tree branch. And then uh, Professor X has gotten close enough. He is using telepathy while driving, which I'm sure is unsafe somehow, but he's, he's, he's on his way there. He's now close enough to contact Cyclops. He says, now is the time to fight back. They've got their powers back. They stand back against the mob. They run as the mob opens fire on them. And as they get away, Professor X uh, closes in and erases the memories of this encounter from the mob, uh, presumably erasing Bobby's identity from their minds as well. They then get Bobby's permission to come join the school. He's the second X-Men recruit after Cyclops. Uh, you got to remember, these are like 15 and 17-year-old kids who've been through this. 
Uh, and then Professor X uh, takes away the memory of Bobby being a mutant from Bobby's parents as well. So they think Bobby's just going off to a special school. So one of the things, and I, and I would love to hear uh, from Tom on this particularly, but everybody, this was taking place, this, this book was being printed during the civil rights era where we had so many stories, not just about uh, lynchings that were taking place against African-American or black people for so many years, but during the civil rights era, we had mobs gathering around and protesting and standing against social justice and we had evidence of black and frankly, even white allies of black causes being killed in lynchings or other really violent ways. Marvel doing this story and throwing not only the anti-mutant storyline into it, but making these people who were anti-mutant look very violent and very deadly and then throwing the lynching theme on top of it. It takes the story of prejudice that we so often see in the X-Men and it gives it a very uncomfortable reality. Literally everyone in this story, in this backup story is white. So there's all kinds of different parallels that we can draw and why that could be problematic. But we have a country where black people were hung for having opinions or for standing up or for being accused of things they didn't do. Uh, and this is this is a poignant, but kind of uncomfortable storyline because we, we see Gary Friedrich take this theme of anti-mutant prejudice. We see a man being called a muty lover. We see the ropes thrown over the trees. We see phrases like, let's stretch their necks. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable in how sobering uh, the violence of all of this is. Uh, so let me hear from Tom, but I'd love to hear from everybody about your thoughts on the parallels of this story, which just got so very serious after a rather serious issue, frankly. This is kind of a sobering issue of the X-Men. Mm -hmm. To an extent, not to a great extent, but to an extent, um, these were kind of stuck villains in a stuck situation. I remember um, there was a movie in 1950 called Superman and the Mole Men. I remember that. Uh, yeah, it was like it launched the Superman TV series with George Reeves. And he, um, these little guys come up from an oil well and they're like, they have like a ray gun that's an electrolux vacuum cleaner with a funnel glued to the end and they um they're in this texas town and the, there's a real uh fascist jerk who whips up the town against them and uh they're going to be lynched and superman saves them so we've it's not a thing that was unprecedented in this kind of you know uh wonderful junk fiction um but it, it would have had a, one kind of resonance in 1950 and another kind in 1969 i guess but uh i'm glad to say they were always the bad guys i i think too um i when i'm trying to think of what other examples we've got where mutant dumb is you know legitimately being talked about as a persecuted thing and it's it's sort of core to the to the idea the silver age didn't do a lot of it and the only other one i think like up until now is that first sentinels issue i think it's like 13 through 15 where it's overtly that you know they're a threat to homo sapiens we're going to make these robots we're going to capture and or kill them um and you know afterwards i think Neil Adams and, uh, and and Roy Thomas did some good work later on, again, when they brought back the Sentinels. And so I think it's almost like the, the this theme 
is a theme that hasn't reached critical mass yet, right? Like you have one in 1965, you have one in 1968, you have another one in 1969. And then it's almost like 76 through 80, Claremont can really take it and make it a critical mass. Um, and it's interesting to see these early things that that may have been missed. And, and, and maybe like, I, I'm just thinking too of the sort of racism that was in the comics when I think Stan Lee had said, you know, uh, he had wanted to bring a black character in and then distributors had in the South had said to him that they wouldn't distribute those comics. And that would be about 20% of his print run. And on the margins that comics were at, you know, that was, that was fatal, but he started putting them into other places. And I'm not saying this is overtly about that, but it's bringing in, like, as you say, it's a very visceral sort of thing that they're bringing in. Oh, you're on mute though. Two months before this, the Black Panther joined the Avengers. So mm -hmm. we see we see the Black Panther not as a side character, but as a prominent character in the Avengers. But again, part of the thing that makes this really stand out is the Avengers are celebrated for being heroes. The Fantastic Four are celebrated. And here's the story where our heroes are getting hunted down with the threat of being lynched, right? But that uh, goes all the way back to like issue seven or something when... Yeah, I think I think issue seven is the first time we see this. Uh, Magneto sends Toad to Earth to uh, to disguise himself as a human track star, as a, a, in a, in an attempt <laughs> to pull in the X Men. And Toad is really good at jumping, right? And so the X Men come to investigate. Toad rips off his mask, and all the humans who are watching are like, "Oh my God, it's a mutant! Get them!" And they start chasing them down the road. And we see that a few times in kind of the earlier books, but this is a really visceral example of that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this is such a contrast to the A story of the book, right? Because the Juggernaut is not, at least as presented, is not a metaphor. There's no like high concept here. The Juggernaut is just a guy that likes to smash. Yeah. And then the B story is like where kind of the, the truth of the situation with the X-Men really come out. I was surprised to see them address kind of these issues in like a very overt way for this era, because I don't think about them tackling issues of like the persecution in a heavy way. Uh, until we get to the Claremont era. Um, so this, it is interesting that this is kind of like starting to bubble up. The, uh, this is not a kid's book, this issue. Uh, I mean, it still is, it's a comic book for kids, right? But we start with a funeral or a graveside. We have a, uh, we have a, a, a villain that is really harming people, threatening people. We have the reading of a will and then the X-Men get disbanded, followed up by uh, an attempt at lynching. Like this is quite serious content for, for a comic book in the 60s. I don't know, Tom, do you have any thoughts on that? It, it was better to be a kid back then in some ways. Um, you could really, you really, I feel like, I, I just hope kids today have as much access to junk as I did. Because I think it's an important part of growing up. Yeah. Uh, speaking as a father of two, uh, I think I'm the only father. Uh, Tom, are you a father? No. Oh, Derek, Derek, you're a father as well. Yeah. Yes. yeah. Uh, speaking as a father, uh, we're recording this just a couple of days after the really tragic shooting in Uvalde, Texas. It is not an easy time to be a kid. But then we're reading the sobering content from 50 years ago. And I think, man, has the world changed? <laughs> like it's, uh, I don't know, it was kind of a heavy issue uh, going into that after after everything that's happening in the news right now. It's uh, yeah. some rough stuff going on. It really is.
Uh, we're ending on a rather serious note, but I'm glad we were able to find some nonsense along the way. The next three episodes uh, are all nonsense. <laughs> the three next three issues we're going to cover, uh, actually the next four, we have some really crazy stuff coming up. Um, uh, let me wrap up and then I'll ask each of you to do the same. Uh, where can we find you online? What do we have to look forward to coming out from you? Anything that you're able to announce recognizing this episode will come out around June 20th. Uh, you can find Greymalk and Lane on Instagram under that name or on Twitter under Greymalk and P, P like podcast. I keep my own social media private because I've got kids. But uh, uh, in our next episode, we are going to be reviewing X-Men number 47, which is the return of the worst X-Men villain from the 60s, the Warlock. Uh, he's called the Mahayogi in the next issue. We'll talk about it. And then we're going to be uh, featuring the incredible writer, Philip Kennedy Johnson, uh, who I'm so excited to uh, get to know. Uh, let's go in the order of Josh, Derek, and then Tom. Where can we find you online? What do we have to look forward to? Uh, sure. So you can find me on social media at Lost His Keys Man, Lost His Keys Man. And um, Hulkling and Wiccan is out in comic shops this week, the week this airs. And you'll see at the back page, uh, we're doing a follow-up volume of Hulkling and Wiccan. And that's, that's announced uh, this week. So I'm so excited. To, yeah, look for that and more uh, alternate universe boyfriend shenanigans in the near future. Uh, Josh, I love your work, uh, and I'm super excited to see this, not only in print, but to see what else you have planned. Uh, and Blue Beetle. Yes, uh, it's it's good. I'm, yeah, I've got a lot going on right now. It's great. I'm thrilled, great. man. Really happy for you. Uh, Derek. Yeah, uh, so, I mean, this question has come up before in previous podcasts, and novels only come out once a year, so I feel like I'm saying the same thing over <laughs> and over. But, um, no, well, thank you for guesting multiple times. <laughs> No, I'm at uh, Derek Kunskin, D-E-R-E-K-K-U-N-S-K-E-N. -E -E and uh, my my uh, novel, House of Sticks, is out in paperback now. Um, and it's available everywhere. And uh, yeah, it had been starred by Publishers Weekly and Library Journal. So I'm really pleased about that. And uh, yeah, and then my, my previous series is three out of four books out so far. And that's the Quantum Evolution series. And uh, yep, available at bookstores everywhere. Yeah, go pick up The Quantum Magician. That's the only one I've read. I'm looking forward to the next two. Uh, it's a wonderful universe you've built. Uh, and, and then lastly, Tom. I'm at, uh, at Tom Pyre on Twitter. Twitter's the only thing I do anymore. And then uh, Elon's going to take that away, but <laughs> he probably won't. But um, uh, Ahoy Comics has a, we have a pretty big launch in June. It's called Justice Warriors. It's by Matt Boris, the great political cartoonist, uh, who also runs the magazine, The Nib, and uh, the artist, Ben Clarkson. And uh, it's, a, it's an apocalyptic comedy about uh, police, income inequality, um, anything that makes us miserable these days. And I highly recommend Justice Warriors. I look forward to that, Tom. And uh, what are you currently writing at Ahoy? Uh, I'm actually working up a new project we haven't announced yet. But okay. I have, I have a comic coming out in July, um, The Wrong Earth Meet. It's a one shot with my Wrong Earth characters. The Wrong Earth, I'll tell you very quickly, is a Silver Age style hero and a sort of gritty, murderous, modern age style hero get trapped on each other's planets and um, hilarity ensues. Okay. 
Uh, I'm looking forward to reading Our Man as well. I uh, I have not read that series yet, and I look very much forward to it. Uh, what an honor to get to spend the afternoon with each of you. Uh, thank you for your time and talents. Uh, Tom, whenever I have someone come on, I always reread all of their Marvel work prior. So I feel like I have your voice in my head. It's so nice to get to cool. know you on top of that. So thank you for your uh, generosity today. It was great to meet all you guys. And this this it's a terrific thing you're doing, reading all these somewhat terrible X-Men comics. Uh, trying trying to interpret the mythos from a 2022 perspective and yet go back to the beginning to see where it all started. I think uh, yeah. most modern people have not read the 60s stuff. So this felt like a nice place to start. And now I'm 13 months in, so <laughs> we're invested. I will say that of the silly issues that are coming up next, the Cyclops gene, the Cyclops Marvel Girl issue, it's not bad. The Computo, it's 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 wonderful, but it's also terrible. <laughs> I I think there's a charm if you squint at it. Yeah, Jean, uh, Jean's one and only day in her modeling career. We'll be exploring that soon. <laughs> All right, everybody. Oh, go ahead. You asked me what I saw in it, and it as a kid, what I saw in the X-Men. It really, it was just Stan and Jack. I would have followed them into hell. Yeah. Yeah, just legendary, wonderful stuff. Uh, and thank God Claremont saved it all for us. <laughs> <laughs> all right, everybody. Thank you so much. Uh, we will see you back here uh, next time on Grey Malkin Lane. Thank you so much for listening to Grey Malkin Lane. I'm pouring a lot of time, labor, and love into this podcast, and I truly hope you are enjoying it. We're seeking to create a unique space here, and I'm really proud of what we've put out so far and really excited about what we have coming up. Grey Malkin Lane is recorded and edited at a private studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. Music and editing are done by my husband, Michael Bell. Grey Malkin Lane can be found on Twitter at Grey Malkin P, P like podcast, and on Instagram under Grey Malkin Lane. If you're enjoying our work, help us spread the word about this unique podcast. Please leave us a good review wherever you listen and check out our bonus content and fan engagement on Patreon. We'll see you back here next episode on Gray Malkin Lane.